It was only shortly after the workmen left that afternoon when we were battered by a swelling dust storm and forced to hustle to shelter the excavated material under plastic tarps. As the breeze began to whip across the site, we managed to drape the sheet over the structures and the monument, but we couldn't protect ourselves from being pelted by the sand and the wind. The impact of the storm was like being clocked by someone's fist. The gust beat me down into the dirt, knocking the side of my head to the ground. I came to after having blacked out for however long, but it was already mostly dark out. The sun had disappeared beneath the mountains and the sky was blanketed in a rust-colored cloud of dirt. The whirling sand hissed all around me. I cried out for James in the storm and heard nothing. I saw nothing clearly on the horizon either. I followed the slope up until my eyes spied the bumpy silhouette of the tents we had staked, only partially buried beneath the dust. I crouched into its mouth and took shelter there as the light died, and I lay there calling for James. It was futile. I had no idea where he was. I had no idea what was out there. It was sometime after midnight when he returned. Are you okay? I asked as he lumbered into the tent towards the comfort of his sleeping bag. I'm fine, James said. Where were you? I climbed into your trench in the north to try to wait out the storm, he said. That night, I could hardly even look at James, I was so furious. I couldn't believe how careless he had been. Whatever he had said to those workmen was enough to just make them quit on the spot and now we were screwed. There was no way we could gather another month's worth of data revealing complex architecture with a sixth of the workforce. In my head. As I nodded off in my own sleeping bag, I was running damage control, trying to reason what would be the minimum amount of work we could put in to draw something meaningful out of the material we had already unearthed, and to leave the rest of the site in good condition for future field seasons. Of course, all those carefully considered options crumbled the next morning when we trudged onto the mound only to find a scene of devastation. The exposed obelisk had been smashed and shattered, leaving behind only a collapsed pile of clotted dirt. James began screaming and yelling, furious that the villagers had not only abandoned the project, but it desecrated such an important piece of cultural patrimony. He raved of taking up rifles and calling the government in Ankara to investigate, and I didn't necessarily think those were bad ideas on their own. But it was when I looked closer at what was left of the obelisks that I was truly unnerved by what had happened. 
It seemed the soiling and destruction that had been wrought on the clay towers had been spread out, not caved in. Out of a nagging curiosity as to what was even inside the great clay towers, I took up my trowel and began picking at the side of the trench where we had found the second monument, though only its profile stuck out from the wall of the excavation pit. With my trowel, I cut into the side of the clay feature and continued to scrape down through its surface. At some point, I had revealed something thin and gray, like a sheet of leathery paper, and from within it I had teased out the splintered edges of a solid white shaft running through the interior of the obelisk, its apparent scaffolding. When I realized what I had found, I lost my grip on my spade, and I, I just stood there frozen for a moment, trying to make sense of it. The monuments weren't statues. They were sarcophagi. Over that week, since there seemed no point in continuing to excavate further, I set up our collected samples in the free space of my tent and continued to analyze the bones I had bagged from the North Midden. I wasn't a paleoanthropologist myself, but I had received some training in identifying bones and had ample reference material in order to identify species and anatomy in the osteological remains to conduct a quantitative study of the bones, and after a long process of counting and categorization of the faunal samples, my analysis of the findings revealed unsettling details. Included in the samples I had recovered from the now 9 by 15 meter midden trench were remains attesting to the quantity of individual organisms I could identify within the ancient trash heap. There were 923 ichthyological individuals, mostly freshwater species, I suppose harvested in proximity to some ancient lake or river. There were 672 caprid individuals, mostly an animal resembling a smaller variety of mountain goat. Indentations of slaughter found in neck vertebrae. There was evidence to suggest here that the goats at the site were both hunted and gathered together to pasture. There were 180 canid individuals. Mastic dogs, wolves, some signs of violent abrasions, some signs of human consumption. 212 bovid individuals, bones often bearing signs of puncture or violent trauma, but no bovid skulls found in the trash pit. 110 avian individuals, mostly vultures. And 36 Homo sapiens sapiens individuals. Thirty-six human beings. With signs of trauma. With human and carnivore teeth inflicted gnaw marks found across the bone's surface. Cannibalism. Cannibalism on a mass scale. What the fuck happened here? I had only a few hours to try to make sense of the heinous discovery when James appeared at the mouth of my tent. 
Eric, he said, there's something I gotta show you. Yeah, what? I asked. You've gotta come with me, to the cave. I followed James up across the slope towards the peaks, the upturned dust thick upon the ground like a coat of snow. We reached the hollow. James walked a few paces ahead of me, plunging down to the maw of the cavern without hesitation. We squeezed through a narrow chamber, one by one, and after he had passed, I walked in to see him squatted down on the ground, the utility knife set beside him, and in front of him he pulled or rolled something on the ground with his fingers. What are you doing? I asked. Eric, please, don't freak out. Just watch this, he said, placing the little pinched clay figurine he had made in front of him. A fat little snowman with lumpy legs, long, stringy arms, and a cavity mouth pressed in by James's thumb. Before I realized what he was about to do, James held out his wrist and sliced across his skin with the steel utility knife. What the fuck? Why would you do that? I barked. Just watch, he said. I wondered whether to just turn and leave right then. James was acting crazy, and being in that place bothered me immensely. But then I saw something beneath James's hand. The little, lumpy figurine, the drops of James's blood having dripped across its smooth skin and stained it a deep red, began to wiggle its base and its hide, and I, I watched as the unbalanced little clay snowman teetered over onto its side and struggled to pull itself back up with its thin and weak stringy arms all the while mouthing its silent cries of anguish out of its impressed orifice. I felt almost physically ill after what James had shown me in the cave. I refused to share a tent with him and had told him I wanted to be left alone that next day. First I, I tried to find some other busy work to do, some more data to organize, some, some presentations to prepare for when he and I were back in Toronto and this place would seem like a strange dream. But really, really I just wanted to to try to, to resist acknowledging that there would be no going back to normal after what we'd seen in here. And I, I grappled to bury my collapsing sense of reality in a beat-up old paperback copy of Moby Dick, but, but my desperate attempts at denial only brought a grander scale to all my anxieties. It was a living thing. A living thing not with limbs and appendages formed of organs, but of clay and blood and artistic suggestion. This was the stuff of gods, something half-remembered in the earliest myths and legends. And all I could think of then 
repeating over and over in my thoughts was that, that detail from Genesis, that God had formed Adam from dust and Eve of his rib. This was something primeval, this magic of blood and clay. I tried to sleep, but, but all the things we had seen over the past month continued to flicker through my mind. Late at night, sometime around midnight, I heard someone's footsteps outside the tent. I waited for the footsteps to fade further from the camp, and then unzipped my tent to see James walking out into the distance, hiking up across the hills towards the top of the great mound. I followed James and watched him stride up the ridge, nimbly sidestepping rocks and debris. From his arm dangled something large and hefty, the headless body of a skinned goat we had brought from the butcher in town for our cooking. In his other hand, he carried a shovel. When he reached the center of the hill, he sat down on his knees. I crept down by a pile of stones that lay on the edge of the tell, and I watched him just sitting there, stoically, for a long time, waiting for something as the shifting sands hissed across the face of the mountain. Then, after some time, two towering figures appeared on the far side of the mound. As they drew closer to James, I realized they did not move like men, their backs strangely stooped and their arms ending in long, jagged edges. They seemed draped in something that looked like robes, the long, tattered cloth rippling out in the strong evening breeze atop the tell. I could see little of the rest of their bodies in the dark, but sometimes I would catch a glimpse of their iridescent emerald eyes like wild animals caught in torchlight. James wrenched up the butchered goat and heaved it over to them. The two things set upon it, ripping the scraps of flesh from the carcass between them with their bare hands and gorging themselves on the meat like lions tearing apart a gazelle. When they had taken their fill and lost interest in what was left of the disemboweled carcass on the ground, James stood before them. Trying to speak to them, I watched as he seemed to draw something for them in the earth in front of him with the end of the shovel. Then James set down the shovel and knelt down on his knees again before the figures. The two things seemed to speak, gesticulating over James with their long and sharp fingers. The impression of their voices carried on the wind like the breathy rasps and snarls of wildcats. I watched the three of them converse out there, seemingly for hours. It was early in the morning when they finally dispersed, the beings turning back the way they had come, and James returning to our tent. After seeing James that night, I knew we were falling deeper and deeper into whatever it was that had come to the site. I knew we had crossed a line a long time ago, and that we had to get out. When the sun came up over the mountains, I 
I left camp and desperately tried to start the truck we had rented to port our equipment up the mountainside. The engine brayed and simmered in obstinance, compelling me to cry out in anguish behind the steering wheel. Still, James didn't stir from his tent. Knowing that the engine needed the hand of a mechanic, I descended into the town near midday. As I hiked down the long, gravelly slope and into the village, the hammer of the sun couldn't banish my anxious thoughts. I arrived in town blistered and caked in sweat, desperate for relief, but none to be found. Every shop was shuttered, every door was locked, no one walked the streets. Wandering across the village, I called out for help, pleading for mercy from the people who had previously shown us such hospitality. As the afternoon shadows grew long, and all hope was lost, I turned back and began the journey uphill across the mountain to our windswept encampment, filled with dread of whatever lay in wait for us that night. It was after dark when the howling started. From up across the mountain rose animal cries and screeches that flooded the mountainside, and from the ground beneath us heaved a deep rumbling. The wind outside roared and rattled the walls of our tents. At first, I, I tried to deny it. I buried myself in my book and sealed my head beneath my covers, but... but the thought of what lay out there continued to nag at me. The thought of James and what he was becoming. The memory of the man I had considered such a... such an indispensable partner, and how unnatural his turn of priorities had been, had sunk into me. He wasn't in his right mind. He... he didn't deserve to be swallowed by this place. After much self-recrimination, I decided to go fetch James from his tent and take him to flee once more down into the valley below. Certainly with enough haranguing, somebody in the town would have to shelter us. It was... It was better than laying there for the rest of the night and waiting for those things to come for us. But. When I crossed over our camp to collect him, shielding my face from the billowing wall of dust which rushed towards my eyes and my mouth, I found James's tent already empty. Fear seized me. I knew he must have gone out among them once again. I summoned up my courage and emerged from the tent. Reason or superstition be damned, I wouldn't leave without him. Yet as I trudged up towards the dark summit, casting myself against the crashing waves of sediment that battered me and scraped against my skin, I knew that I was lying to myself. I continued to meander up along the slope endlessly, following up the incline of the mount since I couldn't see anything in front of me, 
Drawing myself closer and closer to the wailing and the throbbing, my boots sunk heavy with every step. As I surmounted the mountain's spine and rose to its summit, the wind calmed, but the din of the shrieking and the rumbling only grew. Before I had even recognized a dark hollow in the ground in front of me, my legs had carried me before the open maw of the cave, a cacophony of cries and clamoring bellowing from its throat. Just inside the mouth flickered the lonely and feeble light of a torch set against a boulder, perhaps left out for me by James. The clattering chants and droning echoing louder across the walls. The stalactites glistened, hanging from the ceiling like saliva-slaked fangs, while underneath ribbed and bulbous stalagmites rose erect carved and polished into the likeness of swelling phalluses by primeval hands. The walls and outgrowths of the cavern seemed to teeter and waver, as if shifting flesh. On the walls flickered painted scenes of vast and thorny beasts devouring men that seemed to stretch and struggle in the sputtering light of the flame. As I walked, the trickle of a chilly stream seeped across the floor of the cavity's gullet. The waters, red and murky, littered in deposits of ripped-apart carcasses and floating bones. I continued to wind through the twisting and labyrinthine passages of the tunnel, the wailing and the thumping beat only rising up ahead. I had no idea how long I had been stumbling through the cavern when I saw the orange glow of a flame coming from a chamber at the far end of the gallery I was crossing. I doused the torch in the polluted water that ran across the ground and crept carefully to conceal my approach. I came to the corner of the corridor and gazed out onto the great stony hall. It was a teeming mass of bodies, of flesh and hide and fur and bone. There on the floor writhed the nest of these things, the naked curves of men and women intermingled with claw and talon, a pile of matted brown hair, black wings and leathery dark skin, gesticulating together in an ecstatic heap. The things moaned and bellowed as they heaved atop one another, swaying to the throbbing rhythm of a hideous band of bundled creatures who beat tanned drums and pierced the chamber with shrill whistles fashioned of hollowed bones. Their terrible pleasure swelling at intervals to a fever pitch of wailing, and at others collapsing into a simmer of growls and hissing. All across the walls, the thrall cast perverse shadows through the fires which climbed from the great chamber's protruding rock features, as if ejaculated from the jutting stone spires. In the corners of the chamber of swirling flesh and hide sat a row of the creatures, sipping from stone bowls and snapping at one another, rending their portion from the rump of a carcass they tore between them. In this struggle, a fight broke out, and I watched as the feasters descended on one of their own, wrenching him in twain and devouring what was left. In front of the revelers, 
a line of the things had formed, kneeling solemnly before a lumpy pile that rose from the floor of the cavern. Above the bulge stood one of them, wearing a mask from which curled boar's tusks. Over the heap, the priest poured a dark liquid from a bowl that seeped over the bunch of smooth clumps. And it was then, in the wavering firelight, that I realized what they were. It was a stack of skulls, sculpted and molded with skin of clay, like the ones we had found in the ancient shrine. I watched in horror as their brows and jowls contorted, their mandibles snapping mindlessly like castanets at the sacrament washed down their surface. The beast at the front of the line approached them, dragging itself towards the collection on its hands and knees in a pained and hobbled devotion. It slowly removed one of the heads with its paws, drawing it beneath its mouth and sobbing over it in a haunting performance of choked mourning. Then, the beast drew out its long tongue and licked up the skull's sockets and across its forehead, lapping the blood up from its scalp. Up, above the carnal mass, loomed seven figures. The tall, crooked ones I had seen James speak with out on the mound. They stood as silent sentries above the ceremony, shrouded in peach-colored cloaks of stitched skins. Upon their heads they donned a helm of bone, the skulls of animals. One a wolf, another an elk, another a bear. But worst of all was the great presence at its center, seated with its long legs crossed upon a crude throne formed of the warped rock face. Its nude body was that of an impossibly tall and muscled man. From its head hung the enormous skull of a great aurochs, its thick, curving horns rising up above the chaos of the room. My gaze fell upon its dark and vacuous sockets, imagining what strange devotion had produced something so terrifying. I continued to stare. I continued to stare up until I saw that he too gazed back straight upon me. And I gasped losing balance and slipping from my hiding place and collapsing onto the soggy cave floor, prompting me to cry out in surprise. When I rose to look back upon the great hall, I saw that the whole crowd of beasts had ceased their rutting, and in the dim torchlight, a hundred pairs of hungry, gleaming eyes peered down at me, wetting their lips. I leapt to my feet, and I turned to run, shooting down those pitch-black galleries chased by the roaring and howling of the predators on the hunt. The skin of the cave itself seemed to writhe and squeal at my flight. Racing through the pitch-blackness, I groped my way frantically through the long and narrow passages, stumbling and scraping up my legs in my escape. I burst from the mouth of the cave, the wind still whirling across the mountain. I barreled down the slope until I lost my balance and fell, 
rolling the rest of the way while still hurling myself down desperately on my hands and my legs with no care for fracture or wound. Above me, I heard as the wild shrieks and screams breached the surface and erupted, echoing out over the valley, their giddy cries rushing down the slope behind me. I swept down the path and into the streets of the village, banging on every door of every home that I could see for help. Still, no one emerged, and no sign of life stirred within the homes, and all around the town a chorus of barking surrounded me, and I knew then that there would be no rescue. And so I... I resolved to hide by any means necessary. I, I managed to leap over a garden wall and wrench myself up over it into someone's patio. Now sheltered from the street, I crouched down in the courtyard and hid, listening as new, inhuman cries flooded the town. A racket of terrible braying that rose in fits. They must have been crawling all over, searching the alleys for me for hours. I... I was relieved to have found some sanctuary from the stalking predators when I heard a long, creaky groan from the gate on the far end of the courtyard. I scurried away on the ground, groping for some alcove or crawl space. At the edge of the yard, near the wall, I slipped behind the door of a gardener's shed. From between the cracks of the shoddy wooden door and the pale moonlight, I saw the thing skulking about the garden, guided by its long snout and sniffing the ground for me. As it drew closer, I caught a close glimpse of the beast's hideous anatomy. It was draped in a tattered cloak of fleshy skin. It hobbled about, limping on two legs, one dark-furred and hooved, the other feeble and clawed its bony length exposed. Its hands were long-haired and robust, like the paws of a lion, clearly stitched onto its shoulders. Its hands terminated in an armory of countless talons. Some of large cats, some of raptors, even some iron hooks and razors dangled from its appendages as if the blades of its digits had been collected and replaced over the ages. Its head that waved from side to side in its scanning was a bare-scalped human skull with the ears of a wolf, the toothy snout of a canid molded and affixed to its mandibles. It, it stood there near me, heaving its rotted breath for what felt like an eternity, attend to any noise or sign of movement. Then, hearing the screeches of its coterie from the alleys, it began to shamble away back through the courtyard. When I heard the gate close, my shaking knees buckled beneath me, and I collapsed onto the floor of the shed burying my head between my knees and listening to their feral wailing from across the village.
Sometime in the early hours of the morning, the shrieks began to soften, and only the howling of stray dogs and the moaning of the breeze were identifiable in the chorus of the night. I waited until the sun had risen and the air had begun to warm before I leapt the fence. I began the long hike back up towards our camp trying to reassure myself that I hadn't seen any evidence of them out during the day. I couldn't imagine that James had made it through the night, that those things, whatever they were, hadn't devoured him, like prey they had hunted on these ancient plains. My forehead throbbed as I walked, playing out the possible scenarios of what had happened to him last night as I considered what I would do. I could not imagine that James had made it through the night. Those things, whatever they were, hadn't devoured him, like the prey they had hunted on these ancient plains. My forehead throbbed as I walked, playing out the possible scenarios of what had happened to him last night, as I considered what I would do. I... I needed to see if he was still there. Somewhere on the mountain. If I couldn't find him, then so be it. I knew my career would be over, but... But I had to see if maybe... Maybe this had all been a bad dream. I returned to our campsite to find that our tents had been torn apart. Our personal items littered the ground in disarray. My notes had been torn and scattered. Our samples all destroyed or missing. I shouted to see if James still lingered somewhere nearby, hoping he had rallied here after the chaos of last night, but there was no sign of him. Maybe. Maybe, I thought. Maybe he was still somewhere deep in the cave, or maybe he had found somewhere along the mountain to hide. As much as the thought of returning to that cursed hollow filled me with dread, I had to find him. I resolved that I would hike to the entrance and call in, hoping he would appear from out of the cavern or somewhere higher along the slope. I... I didn't make it up to the cave. When I had made it halfway to the summit, I was stopped in my tracks by the sight of a ring of shadows in the sky, circling over the bulge of Choban Tepeshi. I approached to see that a new shape stood at the center of the ancient mound. On the spine of the hill was a large heap of red clay, piled taller than I am. Across its surface protruded the claws of a fox and the talons of eagles, and, and from its top peered James's bloody face, bereft of skin or eyes, and crowned in the horns of an ibex.